Welcome back to the podcast. In our last two episodes, we saw what was really the tragedy of Jacques Cartier and his colony on the St. Lawrence. But now a couple decades down the road, our story of New France picks up on points further south, inside of what would now be the United States. This is the story of French Florida. Now, Florida at this time was most securely claimed, just by the European standards, most securely claimed by the Spanish, who basically considered everything north of Mexico in North America to be Florida. By that same token, the English claimed pretty much all of North America because of the voyages of Giovanni Caboto, or John Cabot. But then there was the French with their own claims to North America, including Cartier's settlements and Giovanni de Verrazzano's expedition up the coast, uh, the eastern coast of North America, that is. As we've seen in earlier episodes, the early French maps chunked North America into a northern section that would be New France and a southern section that would be Spanish Florida, with a nice convenient ocean in the middle, or sea, called the Sea of Verrazzano. As the decades wore on, it became more and more apparent that the sea was imaginary. North America is one huge thing. There isn't a middle or Mediterranean-like sea. And so in the 1550s, with Spain and France at war with another with one another, France finally said, you know what? Maybe Florida is part of New France. If we can put men there, make a settlement there, that's more than the Spanish have managed to do up to this point. Maybe Florida is part of New France. And this will be the enduring question for the entire saga of French Florida. Is Florida part of New France? I'm sorry I'm being redundant, but I'm going to come back to this hours from now. So remember it now, save it, store it away. I'm coming back to it. Now, why was Florida so ripe for the picking against the mighty Spanish Empire? Remember, they toppled the Incans. They toppled the Aztecs. Why haven't they taken over Florida? What happened there? Well, if you remember Ponce de Leon, ventured through Florida, along with many other explorers, and they all either ended up in failure, colonies that fell apart, and leaders who were killed by natives. Disaster. Florida became a horror zone for Europeans. They were afraid of it. The rumors of cannibals that started in the Caribbean had found their way onto the mainland of Florida. And the natives were seen as horrifying, gigantic creatures who'd feast on Christian flesh. As such, the relationship between Europeans and natives and what would be Spanish Florida were limited to the natives picking through shipwrecks for metal objects and other useful things they couldn't make themselves. And then this is where the French enter the story because they had little hideouts in little coves along the coast, well-guarded from the natives, well-hidden from the Spanish, and the French privateers, basically state-sanctioned pirates, would raid the Spanish Caribbean in places further south. And so at this point, France is valid in asking the question, Do you, does Spain really own Florida? Nobody in Florida seems to know about it at all. We have pirating operations all over it. And our territory of New France runs right into Florida without any natural barrier. So why not take a shot at it? But who in the French Empire would be of the right mind to challenge a Spanish possession and plant a French colony in a Spanish territory when Spain and France are sometimes allies. They're Catholic nations that sometimes get along. Sometimes they war with each other. Why plant a colony in a land maybe full of cannibals that might be just given back to Spain once they're in peace with one another? Who would do that? Well, I'm glad you asked. The answer is, of course, the Huguenots. Yes, that word you've heard a million times, and you might not know exactly what a Huguenot is. I'm going to explain it right now. But without the Huguenots, we don't have the epic story of French Florida. 
The Huguenots were, very simply, French Protestants, mostly Calvinists. I'll explain the difference. Now, the term Huguenot itself is shrouded in mystery as far as its derivation is concerned. As you know, the Catholic Church often had a violent reaction to the Protestant Reformation. In France, it was no different. And so the first generation of Huguenots, and even the second and third, they were hidden. They were underground. What exactly they did, how they organized themselves, is still a mystery to this day. We don't have the documentation. They were a secret, hidden group. And so Huguenot might be derived from a Germanic phrase, either German or Dutch, for housemates. Basically meaning these are people who are secretive and to themselves, and they're housemates. But there's five or six other good guesses as well. No one knows the truth, and so it's not worth arguing about. Anyway, Huguenots, French Protestants. And again, most of these Protestants were Calvinists, to be very specific. Now remember, there's Martin Luther. Starts Lutheranism. John Calvin comes along a generation later than Luther. He's French, of course. He's a lawyer, and he's introduced to Protestantism while living in Paris. Eventually, his interests become of public record, and he has to leave France. Remember, and this is important to our story, the Catholic Church is an arm of the French government. And the priests are a protected class. And so if you have these religious dissidents come along, it's not so much that they just don't agree with you on religious, non-earthly things. They're in direct opposition to your government. So imagine the Catholic Church is a third of the French government. Now let's take that in today's terms. And let's say you have a group of people who don't like the American Supreme Court. Don't believe it exists, don't believe it's valid. That could be problematic, right? It's not that they disagree with one ruling or two rulings. They don't find the institution to be of any value at all and in fact think it's evil. That is incompatible with American civic life. Anyway, John Calvin, he has to leave France, makes his way through the German states, and becomes fully immersed in this new Protestant world of thought. And he's viciously smart, both on the, the worldly legal level as a lawyer, and then on the theological level as a thinker. And he publishes these books, and the city of Geneva gives him the city. They're just like, here's Geneva, take it over. And at age 32, he's the ruler of a city-state. The preeminent historian Jacques Barzun says that John Calvin was a sort of Lenin to Luther's Marx. Pick that apart for a little bit. And he also says that John Calvin came about at just the right time because he may have well saved Protestantism when it was at its low ebb. Just when the Catholic Church was starting to make gains on the tracks that Luther put down, John Calvin comes by and the type of Protestantism he creates is a supercharged version, super individualistic, super heady. And while much of the German states and the Nordic countries would stay old school Protestant, Places like France, Scotland, the Puritans in England, the Dutch Reform in the Netherlands, they take on the Calvinist strain. And what does that mean? And so here are some general Calvinist, Huguenot, Dutch Reform, Puritan. This is a general Calvinist qualities that you're going to find all throughout this series when we talk about these different groups. First of all, they believed in predestination. Your life has already been determined for you. It's already been written. They often use the term a watchmaker god. So the entire universe is like a watch. It's been designed to tick off in certain places. The arrows are going a certain way. And everything is pre-planned because God is perfect. He created the universe. There is a plan. You're part of that plan, which sounds great. And it does. It gives you a warm feeling inside because you feel like you belong to something great and immense. But 
by that logic, you don't really have free will, do you? Your life is part of that watch. You're, you're a second ticking away, and it's already been preordained. And so this takes us to an important quality of these Calvinist religions, at least at this point in history. I'm not talking about today, and there are many descendants back then. So if everything's preordained, including your life, predestined, that means you are either part of the elect or the damned. You have either been selected before you were even born, your soul was put aside for those who will be saved and be one with God and have a heavenly reward, or you are put in the trash bin for the wicked soul that you are and your garbage and, you know, hell and eternal uh, fires of, of damnation are waiting for you. It's one or the other. Now, this is different than the Catholic Church, where through faith alone, you can be saved, right? Everyone can be saved. It's the Catholic the universal church. Everyone can be saved if you come to it. No, the Calvinists believe you were from birth or before birth chosen. You're either going in the trash bin or you're going up to heaven. Now, which one is it going to be? You have no control over this. You could, you could be the best person here on earth, do all the good things you think you're supposed to do, go to the Calvinist church of your choice. You're still going to hell if you weren't selected. Predestination. I'm done harping on that point. So unlike the Catholic community. We're all part of the body of Christ together. The Calvinists were obsessed with moral self-control. The individual has to govern themselves. And if they can do so successfully and live a virtuous life, it's a good sign that they were part of the elect, that they're going to be saved. And so morality becomes very important. Self-control becomes very important. Um, the belief that government can regulate your behavior becomes important. That, that's true up to this day. And earthly things must take a backseat to heavenly things. Calvin wrote that the earth must be worth nothing to us. And so the Huguenots were mostly French Calvinists, not just Protestant, more specifically Calvinists. This was just incompatible with the French government and the Catholic Church, like I said. And the Huguenots were probably right in thinking that the Catholic Church had become of this world, right? They're literally a branch of the French government. And according to Calvinism, they need to reject this world. They need to work for something better. There is no compatibility between the two bodies. And what's going to happen in the decades after French Florida, we're going to see nine civil wars. France has nine civil wars in like 32 years. That's insane. And millions of people are going to die. And one last thing I promise, and then we'll jump into the story. If you look at historians like Max Weber, he wrote the Protestant work ethic, something like that. I forgot the name of the book. But they mention how... Protestants and Calvinists especially, like Puritans, were obsessed with finding out if they were part of that elect. Were they part of that special group? And so something they would do is they would make investments. They would work hard at skills. They would take risks to see if they would pay off. And if they received good fortune, that would be seen as a sign from the heavens that you were part of the elect, the special group. You got special treatment. And so what group in France would be crazy enough to take on the great Catholic empire of Spain? and make a settlement in a land maybe populated by savage cannibals? The Huguenots. I answered my own question in a roundabout way. I'm sorry if it took a long time to get there. There's a billion other podcasts in the world. You're getting this for free. And so in the 1550s and 1560s, the Huguenots were becoming desperate because they could sense the tension. They could, they could feel the wars on the horizon. And their own numbers were swelling. Throughout the 1550s, the Huguenots grew to be as much as, some estimates say, 15% of the French population. A lot more say they maxed out around 10 to 12%. But 
suddenly at the beginning of the 1550s, very small minority. By the end of the 1550s, a sizable minority. And just like in politics today, when you have certain groups that you can cater to, uh, the Huguenot cause became political. Now, there's a distinction historians make that uh, people were even aware of at the time. You had religious Huguenots. Then you had political Huguenots. Now, this is a whole new thing. These would be people who could rally around the Huguenot cause, but who were doing so for political reasons, because they didn't like the current power structure, who was in charge, who was making the laws, and they would be the new vanguard. With the Huguenot cause becoming both religious and political, it gained a lot of followers up at the higher echelons of French society, including the admiral of the French Navy himself, Gaspard de Caligny. I know I butchered his name, but that's how I want to say it. These high-ranking Huguenots, both within the Huguenot movement and the government of France, were concerned with how are we going to fit these new Protestants, our followers, our people, people who believe what we believe, how will they fit into French society, which is so very Catholic from both the cultural and political level. Now, in the 1550s, Caligny set up colonies in and around what we would now call Brazil, right in the heart of Latin America. A large portion of the settlers in these colonies were Huguenots. He put them on the fringes of the empire versus other Catholic powers. Because who could you trust inside of the French empire to be loyal against another Catholic power? Well, your Huguenot minority. Unlike the admiral's failed colonies in the past, Florida would be right on the edge there. You might be able to get away with digging in. And the admiral was no political Huguenot. He was a personal friend of John Calvin, and he took his religion seriously. Who would be in charge of French Florida? Who would help him with his venture? He chose two lesser nobles, René de Laudonnaire, his own kin, and Jean Ribot, both experienced naval men and soldiers and staunch Huguenots from the north of France. Ribot, having some experience in the New World, having worked for Sebastian Cabot, John Cabot's son, Giovanni Caboto's son, and uh, converted after that point to Protestantism. Now, this is where the American myth of French Florida kind of overshadows it, right? You have a group of Protestants coming to the New World to seek religious freedom by finding a little tiny area of the earth that they can isolate themselves and be free. That's the myth that we apply to Plymouth. And some writers have applied it to French Florida. It's like the Plymouth 80 years beforehand or 60 years beforehand. I can't do math. But we can't think of it that way. That's how American writers want to color this venture. But many people would be involved in French Florida simply for the money. And a large chunk of the population, although not the majority, weren't even Huguenots. So let's not think of that Puritan myth. Let's not think of that Plymouth pilgrim myth. Let's not color French Florida with that. Instead of religious dissidents looking for freedom, these were religious dissidents looking to fit in to an empire, followed by a large chunk of their population that is just going to be there for profit and adventure. Laudonair and Rabot are tasked with scouting out a new location to start this new colony. And so in February of 1562, Coligny finances some ships for them, and they head off to what would now be the southeast coast of the United States. Not exactly Florida, because remember, Spanish Florida was a much larger amount of territory. They spot the coast of North America at the very end of April, and they make landfall on May 1st. Where they landed, there was a beautiful river, and they named it the River of May. Not a very creative people at the time. 
Now we call it the St. John's River. Jean Rabot remarked that the land was the fairest, fruitfulest, and pleasantest of all the world. As they traveled up the coast, they left large marble columns, both marking their progression and claiming the land for France. Furthermore, they ran into some extremely friendly natives called the Tamuka. These people will be very important to our story. They're described by the Spanish and the French as just giants with tattoos all over their bodies. And while the Spanish feared them as cannibals, the French very quickly realized that they were friendly. They wanted to trade and they had a healthy hatred of the Spanish who occasionally plundered their way through the peninsula of Florida. The Spanish found them easy prey from time to time because although at their height, the Tamuka may have numbered anywhere from 200,000 to 900,000 in population, they were not united. They were not like the Haudenosaunee far to the north and existed in separate chiefdoms, perhaps as many as 35. Now the Tamuka greatly outnumbered the Iroquois at any point in their pre-Columbian or early Columbian existence, but they were never united. So if the two groups, which had no connection to one another, but just in my mind, in an alternative reality, if they came to blows, a united Tamuka would completely overwhelm the Haudenosaunee. But that never happened. There's some debate over where the Tamuka language came from. It might have actually came from a Caribbean or South American group from long ago. Or though some people classify it as a Siouan language, but then most people say, no, it's probably not part of that. So they spoke a language that was remarkably different than those around them. They had matriarchal systems. They had clans, much like the Iroquois we talked about during season one. They practiced slash and burn agriculture. They had pottery. They used weirs for fishing. They had round dwellings, not like longhouses, but closer to those used by Powhatan and his people that you'll see in John Smith's drawings. They had similar crops to all the native groups we've learned about thus far, corn, bean, squash, but they also had melons and all sorts of tropical things that you would find growing in the southeast United States or in Florida. And that's part of the reason why there were so many Tamuka, because they lived in an area where the land just gave and gave and gave. That had three or four growing seasons. And we'll find in our story that the Tamuka had, they had classes, they had hierarchies. There were certain people who were treated better. There were certain people who were the leaders and they were inaccessible to the lower classes. And I find this generally, the further you go in North America, as far as the Native American groups go, the more social hierarchy there is, the more distinction, the more classes there are, the less social mobility. This is the case. The Tamuka have chiefs. They have kings of sorts. And you can't make it into that class unless you're part of a certain clan, certain family. And this upper class of chiefs, they ruled over five to ten villages each. And so there were lots of little Tamuka states all warring with each other. So when the French showed up, were far different than the Spanish in their attitudes. The Tamuka were like, thank God, I have an ally here. And as much as they were thinking about the Spanish, they were also thinking about their other enemy chiefs in the Tamuka villages just over the next hill. The Tamukans, in speaking with the French, realized very quickly they were interested in gold and silver. And so, suddenly, all these stories begin to appear. And the French were hearing about cities of gold further inland in a magical land called Appalachia, up in the mountains. And if you would only ally with us, we could show you exactly how to get there. And so here are the French, surrounded by friendly strangers, in the wonderful Southeast United States, in May, weather's great, even a pasty white guy like me, I can appreciate it. There seems to be food everywhere, there's magical cities of gold just over the next hill. Laudonaire and Rabot, along with their men, say, you know what, we're just supposed to scout out the area, but... 
Seems like this place is heaven. Let's just start building a settlement right here. Some of us will go home, some of us will stay. The party scout out a good site on what is now Paris Island, South Carolina. Again, Florida is a much larger area at this time than the current U.S. state. And despite the extended time that it took to build an entire fort, most of the party were still enthralled by the American South, and most of the people wanted to stay. Rabot and Laudonnaire were going to leave. They had to put somebody in charge, but they also had to decide who would have the opportunity to stay. From their group, they only chose 30 people, and they put in charge of those 30 people, Captain Albert de la Pieria, and they named their new fort Charles Fort, after King Charles IX, King of France. And then on June 11th, Rabot and Laudonnaire left Charles Fort for France, promising to return in six months' time to their little Huguenot paradise in the subtropics of the Americas. But these men that were left behind, they weren't settlers, they weren't farmers, they weren't fishermen, they weren't diplomats, they weren't interpreters, they weren't traders, they weren't merchants, they were soldiers. Not the best skill set for creating a colony. Not, not in the beginning, anyway. The main concern here is food. And you have a bunch of soldiers who neither planted food nor brought an extended amount of food. They're planning on Rabot and Laudonnaire returning in six months with provisions uh, for which they have very little of. Now they're dependent on the natives. And thus far, the natives have been very giving. And anytime they show up somewhere, the natives come out with food and they're like, hey, how you doing? My name's so-and-so. What's up with you? But that's the thing. In native culture, food is often brought as a greeting. It's not a continual gift, though. Uh, and the Europeans don't understand this. They see, oh... I visited this village and they gave me food. They have food there and they're willing to share it. No, 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 no. They're willing to present it as a gift one time for meeting you. They're not willing to feed you forever. But this problem was not evident at first. Francis Parkman, the illustrious Francis Parkman historian, writes, Their thought was not of subsistence, but of gold. Of the 30, the greater number were soldiers and sailors, with a few gentlemen, that is to say men of the sword, born within the pale of nobility, whom at home could neither labor nor trade without derogation from their rank. Thank you, Francis. So we have a bunch of soldiers, and then we have basically useless nobility. Nobody's thinking of food or planning for food, and instead their eyes are set on a North American El Dorado, a new Teonochtitlan, a new Incan Empire, somewhere far off to the west. So at first they were able to obtained stores of food from the natives. And those gifts would get smaller and smaller as the months wore on. And then their storehouse at Charles Fort burned down. They lost everything. They had to rebuild, and the food was gone. And then as hunger set in, and the summer wore on, and it got hotter and hotter out, the men began to revert to their baser instincts. Food theft was running high. Insubordination. The leader of the fort, Albert, he banished a soldier to an island to die of starvation by himself. Soldier's name was La Chier. Then Albert found it necessary to enact the death sentence by his own hand, and he hung a young drummer boy. And as the time wore on, the ships weren't coming. No resupply was in sight. Something had happened. They had been forgotten. They were lost to time. Now all the men, at the end of their metaphorical ropes, mutinied against Albert, killed him. With Albert dead... They put a man named Nicholas in charge, and they went off and they rescued Lachere on his island, starving to death. They brought him back. But the murder of their leader 
didn't change their living situation at all. And now they even had reason to fear a French resupply ship, as, of course, mutiny was a capital punishment. Francis Parkman writes, The sweltering forest, the glassy river, the eternal silence of the lifeless wilds around them, oppressed the senses and the spirits. They dreamed of ease, of home, of pleasures across the sea, of the evening cup on the beach before the cabaret and the dances with kind wenches. And so it became apparent to the men, they had to try to return home. But they had a severe problem. None of them were shipbuilders. None of them were sailors. Let's go back to Francis Parkman for a minute. Not one of them knew how to build a ship, but Rabot had left them a forge with tools and iron, and a strong desire supplied the place of skill. And so they went about cutting down trees. Now it's not clear that they had any sort of sawmill, and so they were probably dealing with some rough logs, and they used moss to caulk the seams in between everything. For their pitch, they used pine, which would be a, a little more appropriate than moss. The natives, probably eager to get rid of them, were able to provide them with ropes, and then they made sails from their own clothing and the few bedsheets that were brought over for the soldiers. As you can imagine, even brand new, this boat was a, uh, a sorry sight to look at. And the men reluctantly, with no sailors, decided to have a go at the Atlantic Ocean. Except for one young boy named Guillaume Rufi, who took one look at the sorry sight and decided, hey, you know what? I think I'm going to cast my lot with the natives. Who did, to their credit, take him in. And so with Rufi left behind, the French set sail in their rickety ship. Now Rufi was later found by a Spanish expedition who was sent out from Havana and probably spotted one of those marble columns left at the front of the riverways. The natives gave him up, and the Spanish forced him to show the location of Charles Fort. And the Spanish burned it all to the ground. And so our story of Charles Fort ends with its complete destruction. But that does not end the story of the men of Charles Fort. Both the leaders, Ribot and Laudonnaire, and we haven't gotten to them yet, and those poor folks who set out in the boat. Rufi might have made the best decision of all of them. Our ragtag group of soldiers headed back on their makeshift ship made good timing, actually. They, they made it quite a ways across the Atlantic. The wind was in their favor, and then suddenly it died down. And they were adrift in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. Their beginner's luck at sailing had run out. The storms began. Perhaps hurricanes, we don't know. The ship, of course caulked with moss, began taking on water, and they needed to have a 24-hour bucket brigade constantly emptying out the bottom of the ship. And then, of course, the meager rations they received from the natives parting the North American continent began to run low. And the food was rationed down to 12 kernels of corn per day. And then, even that gave out. In desperation, the men began to drink seawater and then eat anything that was made out of leather, like their boots. Some, instead of drinking seawater, decided to drink their own urine. And then famished and dehydrated, the men began to become angry once again, as they were before when they mutinied against Albert. Only this time, instead of seeing another man's food as your potential food, they began to see other men as their food. Francis Parkman writes, Nod with famine, 
They counted the leagues of barren ocean that still stretched before, and gazed at each other with haggard wolfish eyes, till a whisper passed from man to man that one, by his death, might ransom all the rest. The lot was cast, and it fell on Le Cher, the same wretched man whom Albert had doomed to starvation on the lonely island. They killed him, and with ravenous avidity portioned out his flesh. But even poor Le Cher was not enough to sustain them to the end of their journey. And eventually, the men in their progressing stages of dying grew so weak they could no longer man the ship or bail out the ship, and they just laid about, and the boat went adrift. And when all hope seemed lost, they were found by an English ship and brought back to England. Being back in the old world, perhaps now they would find out what happened to the resupply. Where's Rabot? Where's Laudonnaire? What is the news from France? Well, it's to that story we now turn. Just a few weeks after our original group left France for Florida, what they called Florida, the first French Civil War of religion broke out. All that tension between the Huguenots and the Catholics that the Duke of Condé and Laudonnaire and Rabot and everybody else was sensing finally came to a head. And it was while our subjects were out in the middle of the sea. They didn't know it was happening. But this would prove to be the first of nine, at least nine, civil wars of religion in France. March 1st, 1562, the Catholic Duke of Guise with his armed escorts, encountered a Huguenot service. And they slaughtered over a hundred of them, who were otherwise innocently having a Sunday service. This leads to unstructured and structured violence throughout France between Huguenots and Catholics. Catholics and Huguenots were throwing each other out of buildings, onto fires. The two factions quickly became organized around two individuals. Again, the Duke of Guise, or Guise, representing the Catholics, and the Duke of Condé, representing the Huguenots. Both these sides, on paper, remaining faithful to the crown, but having their own conflicts with one another, and they're both concerned with their own safety. And so they decide to organize themselves around those principled needs. Catherine de' Medici, the Queen Regent, mother of Charles, King Charles, bans both dukes from Paris. She wants both of them out of there. She's not endorsing either side, She's not agreeing or disagreeing with either side. She wants both of them out of there, as they are essentially both usurping the power of the crown by raising private armies, by battling one another, by not participating in a unified France. Condé leaves, but Guise does not. The Duke of Guise stays, and he's not forced out, and the people of Paris hold parades for him. And so the Huguenots see this as subtle and not-so-subtle support for uh, Catholic aggression against otherwise peaceful Huguenots. The Huguenots in many port cities especially seize control of these towns and towns where their majorities are near majorities. They essentially make city-states out of them, at least for the short term, in order to protect the safety and, and the lives of their Huguenot residents. Because in their eyes, the crown has uh, forfeited them. And in the midst of all this chaos and violence and death, Laudonnaire and Rabot show up back in France with their small fleet. Hey, we made a colony. Everything's going great. We have friendly natives. The weather's good. There's golden cities far to the west. We're having a good time. Uh-oh, what's happening here? 
they discover their illustrious leader, Admiral Gaspar de Caligny, is leading one of these Huguenot armies. So, of course, the two of them immediately fall into place, and they join the movement protecting these coastal Huguenot cities. Rabot, in particular, being of higher nobility than Laudonnaire, took a real leadership position until he could no longer maintain it, and the cities were falling to Catholic forces, and he ran away to England. Rabot was an impressive man, and in England, Queen Elizabeth herself received him, and Rabot tried to elicit from her support of Charles Fort, which, for all he knows, is still there. Elizabeth is very impressed with him, but she doesn't want to upset the Spanish, especially to support the French. What good does that do for England? She instead offers him a free house, a pension, and a commission to explore the coastline of what is Spanish Florida for England. In their final negotiations, Rabot says, you know what? You know, we're all, we're all Protestants here. We're Calvinists, right? I'll give you Charles Ford. We'll transfer it from France to England if you support our resupply. This was an offer Queen Elizabeth could sink her teeth into. And so along with an Englishman by the name of, I believe, a William Stuckley. I don't have the first name written down. I'm betting it's William Stuckley. It says, okay, William Stuckley, Rabot, I'm going to give you guys a bunch of money. I'm going to give you guys a fleet of five ships. And you're going to resupply Charles Fort on behalf of the English in our long-term plan to make a foothold in North America. Now, this sounds like it should work, right? The English in North America turned out very good for them. However, for some unknown, unrecorded reason, Rabot was caught trying to flee with his fleet. Well, with Elizabeth's fleet. It's assumed by many historians that Rabot was not being genuine when he offered to hand over Charles Fort to the English. And he essentially wanted the English ships to resupply the fort on behalf of the French, whom by this time, it looked like the uh, Civil War was going to wind down and everyone was going to be happy again. But Rabot was caught, fleeing away, and was imprisoned in the Tower of London. This is where he writes an account of his perspective of this story up until this point, and he's one of the major primary sources that I use. Those poor starving men at Charles Fort, instead of receiving a fleet of five ships, probably at least one boat just stock full of food, uh, Stuckley, Rabot's English business partner, so to speak, decided to use the fleet to go privateering instead. And so now you know on both sides of the Atlantic, Charles Fort was doomed. The men, hopeless, the endeavor lost. But it would be in this very same year, 1563, that Catherine de' Medici, the king's mother, would organize a peace between the Catholic and the Huguenot factions. And there would be a truce of sorts, for the time being, between the two religious groups. There would be a unified France once again. But, unknown to them, of course, there's eight more of these coming up. And so there's lots of turmoil ahead. But alas, during this window of time, we have Admiral Coligny back at his post. Laudonnaire's back somehow. I don't know where he went off to. And French Florida is ready to begin anew. Charles Fort being no more, the French Huguenots were determined to start again, to find their place in the French Empire, and maybe make themselves a sack full of gold in the process. Good vibes all around. But not so quick! Tune in for our next couple episodes. Because if you thought this was bloody, this was gory, this was graphic, it's, it doesn't even compare 
with the next chapter. You have been warned. I'm Eric Giannis. This has been the Other States of America History Podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you.